This is Joseph Gervaisi. I'm here with Nancy Petrillo Barril. Uh, we are at the Excella Lounge temporary Club Excella yeah. Lounge uh, at 30th Street Station in Philadelphia. Today is August 1st, 2013, and this is part of Lao Fast Philly. Hello, Nancy. Hi. Uh, we've, we've spoken uh, together on the internet, I yep. guess, since I, I first came up with the project, so it's nice to finally now. Yes, it's know, great to finally meet you in eight person. Eight months in, yeah, we, right. can, we can sit and talk. So I guess we'll begin at the beginning, uh, okay. as we customarily do. So in what year were you born and 1959 where? in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Okay. And did you grow up in Norristown? I grew up in Norristown, and when I was 19, I moved to Center City, Philadelphia, 12th and Chestnut, literally right above the East Side Club, okay. the All Adelphia right. House. <laughs> okay, we'll go back a little bit yeah. before, before yeah. moving in. So mm. talking about young Nancy yeah. growing up in Norristown, what was your neighborhood or what was the area like um, at the time you were growing up? Upper middle class. Um, I went to private parochial school. Um, you know, I had a beautiful home that my dad built on lots of land. Um, it was uh, a very um, white bread kind of life. There weren't a lot of uh, people of different cultures from my school. It was mostly Italians, Irish, uh, Europeans. And um, my dad was a Marine. And again, I went to Catholic school, so... You and know, he I served so in Korea, right? Huh? Did he serve in Korea? He served in World War II. World War II, okay. He's a World War II vet, yeah. And he, um, you know, was, I grew up under sort of a little bit of repression and oppression. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> and so I think that was a, you know, a natural trajectory for me becoming uh, uh, a love of punk rock music is with sort of a natural outgrowth of that, I think. Yeah, I, I can yeah. understand that having yeah. a military father. Exactly. Well. So what were then the initial seeds for this interest in this music? So I guess, you know, I started maybe when I was 14 and 15 was I was uh, started to be, my parents actually let me go see concerts at the Tower Theater or the Spectrum. And um, I guess the first like four concerts I saw were Rod Stewart, Roxy Music, uh, Alice Cooper and Kiss right. and right off the bat I just had like this enormous love of live music and just music in general and, and you know just kind of started making my way through you know forming musical taste and and, yeah. and I really had a, a wide variety of music that I that I did like at the time um, as I as you know I got into my senior year of high school that's when I started listening to like Iggy Pop Patti Smith, Blondie, so television, or so? 77 I graduated, okay. class of 77, so, um, and then that's when I started venturing down to the hot club and places like that, you know, right. to where, you know, to see that kind of music. I started reading uh, punk magazine, you know, I still have some of those, in, you know, uh, in my bedroom at, at, at home in Norristown. Sell them on and eBay. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? I think I like cut pictures out of uh, them, so they're probably not, yeah, they're yeah. probably not any good, you know, put them all over my room and stuff. So, um, yeah, those are the bands that, you know, I sort of started to, you know, like, and I like that whole rebellious attitude and, you know. Were you finding that the attitude was reflected in the way that you were dressing, in the way that you were behaving at this time, you know, when you were getting out of high school? Yeah, kind of. I mean, you know, um, we were so defined by what you could buy in stores back then for clothing, you know, and then you had somebody like, you know, Patti Smith who would take like a man's white shirt and, you know, 
splash it with paint or do something like that. So yeah, I had my um, paint splattered shirts and right. stuff like that, you know. And how does dad, what does dad think about dad, all that? Dad doesn't like any of that, you know, in the beginning. And then I went off to school for two years in Harrisburg to get my associate's degree. And that's when Three Mile Island happened. And actually, the night that Three Mile Island happened, I had taken, my dad didn't know, but I had taken the train into Philadelphia to see Roxy Music again because I, I really liked, you know, I liked all, a lot of glam rock too, Bowie, T-Rex and all that. And so I had, uh, I had taken the train into Philly and he was trying to get in touch with me. You know, there were no cell phones or anything. He was flipping out because he wanted me to evacuate Harrisburg, but I was already in Philadelphia. So finally my friends were like, you know, you have to call him. He's like freaking out. So I, I did. He was like, I, I didn't get in trouble because he was glad that I was home. But, um, you know, after that, once I moved into the city, um, my parents really didn't know what I was doing. Well, I guess at that point you are an adult, so. Yeah, yeah, they didn't, you know, in fact, um, you know, someone else came and did an interview with me at my at my Norristown house the last time I was home, and uh, you know he was like, "Well, why are they interviewing you?" And I was like, "Oh, Dad, you know, I used to do shows and do this thing." He's like, "I never knew any of that." And I'm like, "No, you didn't." Yeah, because what you do is secret. <laughs> exactly. That was the good thing about then you weren't on the electronic leash, you know, yeah, and yeah. you could sort of form your own way. So. So when before when you were initially coming into Philadelphia for the rock concerts, yeah. how was Philadelphia viewed by people in Norristown? You know, people in your community. How did they see the city? You know, in my high school, I was considered you know kind of freaky because I was always going to concerts all the time. Like I would go. I mean, I saw people like Al Stewart. You know, like I would go see anybody live just because I wanted to go. Cat. I just wanted to. Yeah, I wanted to go see a concert. You know, I saw Ted Nugent. You know, I saw some crazy, crazy stuff that um, just because I like you know. I wanted to sample yeah, a lot yeah. of different things. I saw I saw Peter Frampton twice. I saw Yes, you know, mm -hmm. saw a Crazy Band. I just wanted to get like a, a repertoire of music and kind of, right. you know, find my way and stuff. So people thought, you know, I mean, you know, in my early years, I was like a cheerleader and student council and stuff. And then when I sort of got into music, then I, I just kind of left all that behind. Um, most of my friends at the time um, a lot of my friends at the time were gay men, and they were very cutting edge with music, you know, and introduced me to the older, you know, older um, the kids that were two, three years ahead of me in high school that were like, oh, you know, you, we're going to see Patti Smith, you know, we're going to go see Bowie, we're going to, you know, we're going to camp out for tickets for Bowie, you know, and, and so they sort of helped lead the way um, for me, too. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the state of Philadelphia at the time that you moved into it. So you moved here, what was it, what, uh, 1979. 79, okay, yeah. so did you have a can you convey any kind of the general impression of the state of Philadelphia? I was scared to death. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I was scared to death, you know. Um, I grew up in the suburbs, and, and probably for like the first couple of months, I barely went out of my house unless somebody came down to, uh -huh. you know, I worked in the PSFS building in a law firm, and uh, I, so yeah, so I, uh, um, it, you know, it was a dangerous place, you know, and I think with real cause it was right. dangerous, you know. Um, the Rizzo years were beginning and, you know, um, the, the police force was, you know, the only ones that were ever investigated for corruption by the federal government, you know, mm -hmm. so there was, um, 
you know, it was it was a little scary in the beginning. And I, I wound up, I, I ran into like a friend that I knew from college in Harrisburg, um, who was living like four or five blocks away. And he was like, oh, we're going to the hot club. So then I had a pal to go around with, you know? And that's when I really started, you know, going to clubs. I don't think I was, I, I wasn't quite of age yet, you know, but it wasn't a big deal. Like back then you, you had licenses that didn't even have your picture on them. Yeah. So I like had somebody, you know, I worked in McDonald's when I was in high school and someone left like a New Jersey license in there, you know, uh, that was of age. And I just used that. It didn't have a picture on it, you know? Yeah, it seems from the other interviews that have done that most of those places ran kind of fast and loose in terms of like they yeah they really didn't care so right really, right yeah. yeah so then I, that's when I started going to the hot club and that was really you know so who were you place. seeing then in in the early days of the hot club when you were going uh, madness and Lena Lovich and and a lot of local bands uh, the proteins the warm jets uh, bloodless pharaohs um, you know, and I, again, I, the normals from New Orleans, I had a punk rock pen pal from New Orleans who told me to, you know, that I should listen, you know, I should check out the normals when they played there, and I thought they were great. Um, and so, yeah, I was devastated when the hot club closed. Right. And what year know? was that that they... Um, that had to be close to 80, mm -hmm. you know, maybe 79 and 80. It was, you know, because it wasn't too long that I got to be, you know, going to those shows and running, you know, it wasn't, you know, it was a walking distance from my house, and it seemed like it was very short-lived that I got to do that before it closed. And I remember we did, like, a little protest, you know, don't oh, sell good. us out to the condos, you know, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. so, did you feel that you were <laughs> sort of fully integrated into punk at that point? That this was something. That no. You so, punk is still kind of growing at this point, and then Omni's opened, and then punk really seemed to kind of explode. Then, you know, we had our radio station XPN that played punk rock. Lee Paris played punk rock music, and you know, you could start to see, you know bands at Omni's and it then that's when it sort of s snowballed into kind of a movement where you know and I, I've heard it said in other interviews and it's absolutely true where you would be in an arcade or you would be in the mall or, or at a record store and you would see somebody with you know a, a badge or a button or you know a leather jacket or a shaved head or something you'd be like hey kindred spirit yeah, you know it was awesome yeah mm -hmm. so and you immediately became friends with them and that's and that's how I met the guys from uh, FOD and you know like right. a lot that's how I met Brian and Pedrick I met them at Omni's on New Year's Eve um, just you know because they sort I could tell they were sort of embracing the same things that I you know was into so it was neat mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about Omnis because I, I can never presuppose that anyone has actually listened to any of the other interviews because I, yeah, you know, yeah, right, I never right, know right, what right. individuals listen to. So although it's been kind of mentioned by other folks, why don't you explain where that was, what that place yeah, was Omnis, like? Yeah, Omnis, you know, I, I, don't, I can't, you know, I'm going to say it was around 9th and Walnut or... Ninth, yeah, about ninth. And, I can't really remember exactly, you know, where it was, but you know, really close to my house in this case. And uh, Lee Paris uh, booked the bands, and um, you know, that's when um, you know it was a small club, but it was a really cool club. Bunny Drums used to play, and they were really neat. And um, he was the one that started to first book. Um, local punk bands you know that's mm -hmm. where you know once I met Brian and Pedrick and you know they decided to form sadistic exploits I think you know our first shows were probably in Omnis you know? mm -hmm. so. and was Omnis doing other types of shows besides punk new wave at the time or were they mostly I think towards? they were you know I want to say you know one time that I saw um, 
oh god I can't remember her name um, she was this really great R&B singer um, I think her first name was Nina. I can't remember it now, but you know, it was like you know, soul funk R&B kind of mix. And I went and saw her there, and she was fabulous. So they were doing other things too, but you know, it was mostly kind of punk and new wave stuff. You know, it was a cool club. I really liked Omnis. So coming into the the scene, pretty much from from the beginning and then moving on through yeah. it, did you see involvement of a lot of women within? punk and we'll talk specifically about this early kind of stage the yeah. early 80s and then we can kind of talk a little bit later you know, yeah there about. was um you know once i'm trying to think there was there really wasn't there were punk girls yes there were definitely girls you know that that you know were older than me that you know were were you know what i consider the cool punk rock girls um but they were just you know on the scene as um there there were some bands, um, uh, that Head Cheese band was playing, you know, I didn't really consider them punk, I kind of considered them an art band, you know, but um, um, there was a girl who played in, um, yeah, see now my mind's going to forget the names of bands, oh, in the Sick Kids, mm -hmm. there was a girl that played in the Sick Kids, and I thought she was just, un I think her name was Allison, and I thought she was unbelievably cool, mm -hmm. you know, and so... Um, you know, there, there, yeah, there definitely, there was Becky Reck who was playing with the excuses and, um, you know, so there, there definitely were women, but we, we hadn't quite formed our, our, our place in the scene yet, you know. So this was something that was forthcoming? That was growing, it was yeah, growing, yeah. you know, very, very quickly, you know, I'm talking over the space of, a, you know, I meet Brian and Pedrick. Um, in Omnis on New Year's Eve and you know within four or five months Sadistic Exploits is formed and I'm managing them and you know uh, writing the fanzine and you know doing stuff like that and then Allison Schnackenberg moved here and uh, you know she was you know she was a huge influence on me in that she was kind of like yeah let's do this you know mm -hmm. I, you know you have ideas and you always think like oh, who's ever going to want to do that right. you know take that on but she was always a yeah let's do it kind of person so mm -hmm. and that was really neat so did you get a sense that this scene was perhaps more welcoming to women than than rock as a whole in the past uh, um I mean, was there any kind of more open possibilities for direct participation? I, I, I can remember, like, you know, growing up, I was always so psyched if there was a, a woman in rock and roll. Like, I remember Susie Quattro. Mm -hmm. Man, I thought that that was so cool that she was, you know, even though her music was kind of, you know, looking back, it was kind of like, uh, you know, and the Runaways, you know, I thought that was, you know, I thought that was really neat. And I, I was a huge Heart fan, you know, I thought Heart was like, you know, the most amazing band ever. And I still think they're one of the most amazing bands ever. So, um, growing up in Philly, like when I hear people talk about it now, like, you know, oh, there, there wasn't, you know, women weren't really part of hardcore or whatever. I'm like, you know, that's bull yeah. because, you know, we ran that shit in Philly, <laughs> you know? And so, um, and I never felt marginalized or disrespected ever. Not you know, not in not in Philly, not in Boston. Ever, I always felt really embraced by the bands and the people that were in the scene. And you know, I never really looked at it from you know with a, a gender lens. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I um, 
I mean, I was in the front row for shows, I was in the pit for shows, and I, you know, I just didn't think that it was, you know, I just didn't look at it that way. Right, right. Yeah, it's know? always been my experience, yeah. that, you know, through moving through the scene, that there's always been lots of active women participants. Yeah, always, maybe they don't yeah. always have the microphone turned to them exactly. because of maybe if they were working on infrastructure and, and projects that weren't yeah. directly out of the microphone. Uh, so I think that sometimes that creates the, the illusion among outsiders so. that right. there wasn't. But and, insiders and, always and, and that's know. And that's, you know, the absolute truth. I, I think, you know, if you, if you, you know, deconstruct a lot of the, the punk rock scene, you will find women behind, you know, everything. We were promoting the shows. We were managing the bands. We were writing the the fanzines, you know, we were making a lot of stuff happen. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I wanted to be in a band. I just had absolutely no talent at yeah. all to sing or play. I tried to play bass ones, you know, I learned like one discharge song. <laughs> That's all I could play. So, um, you know, but I, you know, I just, I just wanted to be involved in any way that I could, you mm -hmm. know, and promoting shows seem to be the and managing bands seems to be the way that I could do it best. So, so you came into that then working with sadistic exploits. Yeah, that's how I started. So that. so you know I'm managing sadistic exploits. And what is this and managing kind of like So so here's managing sadistic yeah. exploits. So you know there's there's you know five members of the band as far as they're concerned paying an equal share. So you know and I'm the one that had the good job at the time, you know, and none of you know some of them didn't have jobs or whatever. So you know I was sort of you know Paying, paying a share to help get the band off the ground to help them record and then that's when we decided you know like we want to bring this to an all-ages audience and so um, Lee Paris had done I remember I went to see Bauhaus at the Elk Center and I was like you know if he can do Bauhaus here then I'm gonna do a show and the, so the first you know we were gonna do punk festival that was our first thing so um, I decided I was really a big fan of the band Annie Postit from uh, England, and so I said I'm going to get them to play. So I called them up in England, which you know at the time is a huge phone bill to call yeah, England. Like still you is. can't, you know, yeah. like you can't even imagine. You know, I mean, it was like 50 bucks or something, yeah. you know. And uh, you know, I called their management up to get them to play the very first Punk Fest. Were they supposed to fly over expressly? For no, this? they were. They, they, they were, were coming over here. They okay, were on tour, and you know they. I booked them. They were going to do the show and everything. And that's when you know the East Side Club had opened up. It, it had started out as like kind of like a, maybe like a disco or something, you know. And then it had sort of gone into rock and roll when I think Bobby Startup got involved. And Bobby was booking them, and Bobby booked Danny Posty and took you know they had a management company and they had a record company, and so they had to play the shows that were set you know on the tour and they couldn't do our show mm -hmm. and then that launched this big crazy feud uh, between us and Bobby. Let's talk about the feud. The feud was good. funny. Yeah. You know. So did you blame? Did you blame? Bobby oh, then? we were so mad at him. Okay. Like you let. So and Lee knew. Paris totally capitalized that. He had us on the radio, like you know, debating and arguing. <laughs> you know, and I look back at it now. You know, I, and I, you know, I, I, you know, tip my hat enormously to Bobby Starter for everything that he's done. But at that time, you know, he was the enemy. Oh yeah. You yeah. know, because he was sort of stepping on our all ages. You know, we wanted to do this, and like, come on, you can get any band in the world. You're gonna take the band that I just booked, you know? Yeah. And um, 
you know, we went back and forth with him, and we, you know, and there were some other things going on too um, with his girlfriend and stuff, which I'll leave out. But um, <laughs> yeah, probably for the best. Yes. Um, so yeah, he was sort of, you know, a, a, the enemy at the time. You know, it was silly. We should have, you know, we were sort of all on the same page. But you know, for that particular incident, man, we were mad. We were really mad. And when, so when we did Punk Fest one. And uh, it was just all local bands. And I remember, you know, we papered the city like, you you know, we paste, you know, posters everywhere we went out. You saw our posters everywhere. And I just still didn't think anyone was gonna come because I kind of thought I knew all the punk rock people in the city and that was like 40 people, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, who's gonna <laughs> come? And I and I think the first was like 500 people. Wow, and I was like, I can remember being on stage, like practically crying, like, thank you for coming, you yeah, know? Yeah. Like, I couldn't believe all these people came out to that so this show. Was the, so it was 80 what? That was, um, that was 80, either, I think it was 81. Okay. Yeah, that was about 81 uh, in October. And so then we immediately did another one after that, you know. And I, oh, I remember, you know, just to go back to the Antipasta thing, we went and we got Martin, we, we waited. Because I lived in the building, I could sneak down the stairs and when they're, you know, when the van pulled up with the band in it, we got Martin and we brought him to the punk fest and he was like, oh, you know, I wish I could have played here instead, you know, yeah, saying all the right things, of yeah. course. You know, I kept in touch with him for a bunch of years after that. He was a pretty cool dude. He sent me postcards from England, call me up in the middle of the night every once in a while. But yeah, so so we did punk fest too. And that was, you know, that turned out to be, you know, hugely successful too. So, so how much of a distance is between one and two? It wasn't much, you know, a right. couple months maybe, you know, because we were sort of on a roll, you know. Um, Money was always an issue because you had to book the PA and rent the hall, you know. I mean, it was, you know, short dollars, but we didn't have a lot of money, oh, so. Yeah. And um, and then I decided that, I, you know, I was, I, I became just absolutely ob obsessed with the bad brains. Mm -hmm. And so, and, you know, so in the meantime, we're going up to CBGB's Sadistic Exploits, you're playing up there, and I'm meeting a lot of people. That's where I met John Watson, who was the first singer for Agnostic Front, and Jimmy G from Murphy's Law. Murphy's, he was like 16 at the time, and Chris from Cause from Alarm, and you know, those guys used to come down and visit me and stuff, and Allison, and um, so I'm like, I have to get the Bad Brains. Like, that was a thing. So Bad Brains was a show um, that I kind of did by myself with Lee Paris's help. Because just because I was like absolutely, you know, I just thought they were the greatest band. I still think they're yeah. the greatest band. I'm ever. not gonna argue with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And what was the venue for and that? And that was the Elks. Okay. okay. And I'm telling you, there was just absolutely nothing to this day, you know, since then or at that time, crazier than seeing them play Big Takeover. <laughs> yeah, know? I imagine the audience. Went it, I mean, I just went nuts. We all went nuts. It was just, you know, I mean, to me. You know, um, that was my home. That was where I wanted to be. And man, they were just the greatest band. Mm -hmm. And I just loved it. But tell know. me a little bit about the Elks, the club. Where, where was it? So was um, it was on Fitzwater Street, you know, I don't know the cross street, you know, not in a good neighborhood at all. So my little brother, who was in ninth grade at the time, would work the door and he had a money belt and he had all the money in a money belt, you know, because yeah. <laughs> it was in this crazy neighborhood. And then downstairs, they, they did serve liquor and uh, that's where the, all, all the old Elks were. And then it was just like... So it like wasn't Elks Lodge. It I mean, wasn't, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. a real Elks Lodge, yeah, working Elks Lodge. Yeah. And then upstairs, it was just this big you know, cave-like room, terrible acoustics, you know, 
uh, no lights really, but just a cool place, you know, just a really, you know, a Black Flag uh, played there. Um, a lot of really good bands, you know, came and played there, and it, it was just awesome, you know. So what do the Elks, I mean, what do the Elks think about you weirdos, you know, booking these sorts of bands playing, and, you know, it's probably a pretty well, You know, I think they thought we were, you know, I thought they would think, you know, I think they thought we were nuts, you know, but they were really cool to us, and they were really nice to us, you know. Um, everybody was pretty nice to us, except maybe the police, you know, mm -hmm. and that was probably because we were doing graffiti or something, you know, but, um, I never really, you know, I never really felt, um, and, and this is maybe because I was a woman too, you know, I was never really scared to be a punk in Philadelphia, you know. People be like, hey, you know, I remember that song Super Freak was out, like, mm -hmm, yeah. you know, right at that time, and people, you know, I'd walk down the street and be like, hey, Super Freak, you know, and I was like, you know, it, it was just, um, it was cool, even when, you know, and I'm jumping around here, when the Love Club, Played. I can remember there used to be like this little troupe of break dancers that used to come in in between sets, and they would like do a little show in the you That's know good. on the on the dance floor of the club and pass the hat around and stuff. You know, I've never heard anyone mention that. Yeah. That's oh good. yeah. Yeah. They used to do it all the time. Yeah. I bet if I, when people hear this, they'll be like, oh, I remember that. <laughs> you know. So how were? So, we'll talk a little bit about the police, I guess. Did you have in doing these these early shows mm -hmm. any issues with police? Was there a presence around, say, Elks Club, or was it so far out there? It, that they it didn't was. Want to I think it was. You know, no one ever really bothered us at the Elks. Um, in fact, you know, my my issues with the police were more in New York or you know in Camden or Baltimore. Um, I can't remember, you know, oh, the only, you know, the main thing, and I'm sure people talked about Cater Street. That was, um, this is the riot. That was the riot on Cater Street and when so autistic behavior um, played. That was in 82. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that hasn't been gone into any great detail, so if you want to kind of explain a little. So it was, I can remember the date, it was August 5th, and autistic behavior was going to just do a block party show. And um, I don't know why or how they, you know, they lived up that way. So they just decided, you know, we're going to block off the street and do a block party. And um, you know, so all the punks came down, and you know, they started playing, and you know, they got through a little bit of their set, and then the cops were like, no, this is getting shut down. You know, I think they were just, I think they were more freaked out by the um, dancing, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. The, the you know, moshing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that that, you know, we were chicken fighting and stuff. You know, I think that they that kind of freaked them out a little bit and so um, they got very aggressive and I you know I saw it happening right away and there was like you know I worked at a law firm you know I my dad that's a marine there was no way I was getting arrested that day I ran like hell they couldn't catch me so I got away and you know Robbie Allison um, I don't know if Brian did they all got arrested did people you know? want getting beat up or, or I don't think they you know I think that they were treated pretty crappy but I don't I don't know that anybody sustained any injuries okay. you know from the cops um, that happened more in Kensington you know mm -hmm. in the starlight so right. okay so going back a little bit to to early 80s did you see any sort of a tangible sea change between punk and its hardcore incarnation absolutely okay. absolutely you know so I had a lot of girlfriends you know, that were really into the punk scene. Shava Gawkel was one of them. I don't know if you know Shava. And, um, you know, she's like a documentarian too. She's, you know, and she, I used to go to a lot of shows with her and um, this other girl, Anne, and Carol Steele. And I really liked 
the energy and power and the rawness of hardcore and they didn't like it as much you know and even you know sadistic exploits you know were kind of like uh, were more a, they were a punk hardcore band not a hardcore punk band you know um, but I really like once I got into like the Bad Brains and, and Dead Kennedys and Black Flag and um, you know then I started liking bands like SSD it hardcore became very a very distinct entity for me you know mm -hmm. that I really embraced and I wanted to be part of you know hardcore I liked I liked hardcore a lot more than you know and some people are like oh it's there's no difference why do you call it hardcore to me there was a really distinct difference you mm -hmm. know and I really liked hardcore right. so uh, so go a bit so you started doing you were doing the shows yep were you you and the people doing the shows were you calling yourselves something uh, no um, I guess when I did, you know, when Sadistic Exploits did shows, we did it as Sadistic Exploits. Um, when I did my Bad Brain show with Lee Paris, it was just, you know, a show, yeah, right. <laughs> you know? So, and then it wasn't, you know, long where um, I, I start, you know, the scene was really small, so you could call people up, you know? And that's when I heard about Sean Stern uh, from BYO and what he was doing out in California. So I, you know, I call him up on the phone and, you know, we all had little ways of making free phone calls and stuff. So, you know, I'd call him on the phone and talk to him for hours and stuff. And then Allison said, like, let's start a BYO in Philly. And I was like, yeah, that's cool. Let's do it, you know. And talked to Sean and said, you know, can we branch out and, you know, do this? And he was like, yes, and this is what you should do. And, you know. Was and Philly the first BYO outside of his? I don't know. You know, tell you the honest to God truth, I, I bet it was definitely the first East Coast BYO, mm -hmm. you know. So, yeah, I would say, yeah. And um, So what constituted, I mean, were there certain, like, were there tenants or something involved in, in you know, I think what that were the there principles was. I think BYO? that there were, I think that there definitely were tenants and principles of BYO. I don't remember them now, but mm -hmm. I remember, you know, having, you know, Sean's a really smart guy, and, and uh, mm -hmm. I remember he had, you know, if you're doing it, this is how you should do it, and this is the way I want you to do it. And we were very, you know, agreeable with whatever he laid out for um, us to do, and so mm -hmm. we did. Yeah, because those shows are kind of, in a sense, the template for much that came afterwards, like the way right. that a hardcore show is run, right. you know, all ages, low door yep. price, this and that, you know, kind of doesn't singly stem from that, but it's certainly part of the, yep. like the initial Absolutely. wave yeah. of that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so you, you folks were then the, the first ones doing these kind of all ages hardcore shows. Right. And really, Philly. you know, I only did, you know, I was only really part of the very first one in Camden, New Jersey, the Buff Hall show with Minor Threat. Right. This is the most, one of the most infamous slash famous shows. Right, of all time. right. Yeah. Well, we missed a couple of shows in between there. Oh, let's go back then. Okay, we'll we can go back to yet. Starlight shows. You want to show Starlight oh, shows? Yeah, yeah, okay, because yeah. those were pretty infamous. So, um, the first Starlight show that we go to um, that gets kind of crazy is uh, Black Flag SOA. Um, and so, you know, we all go down there, and you can just tell, man, the atmosphere, there's a lot of tension in the air, you know, you could, the neighborhood, you could just tell they did not want us there, you mm -hmm. know. It was just like, you know, a really, really bad feeling in the air. And so, um, I was there, and uh, <laughs> it just, you know, that's where the, you know, very first riot happened. And that's just, you know, like, um, townies on us, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think if, if, if um, you know, 
if I have it right, who which show is first. But yeah, so I do think, you know, we had seen I'd seen Black Flag and City Gardens with Daz. And then um, that's when it was right after that, it was it was Henry's maybe one of his last shows with SOA that he's doing and it's and it's at the it's at the Starlight. It's Black Flag, SOA and Autistic Behavior. And that's July tenth, nineteen eighty one. I have to point out that Nancy brought voluminous notes, notes, which is very impressive because no one else has done this to get the facts. Because I I'm old and I can't remember. So, and I remember this kid Victor, who who uh, he was just like a mad animal. He was crazy, and he just said to me, you know, stick close, because if anybody looks at me more than two seconds, I'm taking him down. You know, because nice. it was crazy. So now Chuck Meehan mentioned this this riot as well, saying yeah. it was kind of between like the, the Kenzo Fishtown people and then. The, all the other, the real source of friction was kind of the kids coming up from Georgetown. Right. So now you have the DC kids coming yeah. up, and they, you know, so you have Kensington kids, you have Philly kids, and you have, um, and you have, um, the, the uh, DC kids. Yeah, yeah. And and Kensington's not distinguishing between us and DC. DC's not distinguishing between Philly. Right. And I should point out that the Kensington people are not punks. Are these not are just punks. like the neighborhood. They're local. Yeah, they're local. Looking at yeah. these freaks coming out. Right, right, right. And so DC didn't distinguish between us and Kensington. So you know, the next thing I know, it's a huge, huge riot. You know, and 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 you know, I figure, you know, I'm a girl, and I'm not a fighter. I'm not one of the, you know, like those tough, you know, I'm gonna beat you up kind of girls. You yeah. know, at all, I don't wanna break any nails or anything. Now I remember that a, a, a DC skinhead walked over to me and like looked me right in the eye. And you know, I was like, well, he's not going to do anything to me because I'm a girl. Right. And bam, he hit me right in the head. Oh, I went right the? down, knocked <laughs> out cold. I had, a, I had a hematoma. I actually had Jesus. to go to the hospital. It's a pretty tough uh, yeah, guy. To yeah, and you. later, you know, later when I got to know Ian, he told me who it was, and, and we talked about it. And forget the kid's name, Jay or something. I don't know. I can't remember. But you know, that was a night. You know, I'm making deals with God to get out alive. You know, and I did. And so why I went back for the dead Kennedys which was, you know, a little bit, you know, maybe a month or two later. Um, and this time, Kensington kids were ready for us, you know. They didn't want us there, and that was it. So we were, my, I brought my little brother with me, and again, he's like, you know, ninth grade, 14, 15 years old. So he was involved, he was interested in punk? And yeah, stuff and yeah, he was yeah. just, you know, I was kind of introducing him to, the, you know, I was his older sister who, you know, yeah. you know, did shows and also could get him, you know, front row Van Halen tickets too if I if I had to. So um, we were sitting outside on the steps and I saw a car drive up really slow. And you know, I was street smart enough at the time to say to myself, like I thought they were gonna do a drive by shooting and that's when they threw the bomb at us. And it was um, like a mason jar with, you know, a couple sticks of, you know, like probably you know a half stick of dynamite or something in it and ball bearings and BBs and <laughs> you know, a girl actually got her heel blown off and people had ball bearings and BBs embedded into their legs Absolutely. and ridiculous. I was like you know I, t I, I mean as soon as I saw them I ran you know I had my brother back. I can remember my, my ears were ringing from you know the explosion was really really loud but then I went back inside to see the dead Kennedys. You can't miss the dead Kennedys. Why, but, right, yeah. yeah. And I can remember, like, they had these portholes going around the, you know, the, the, the thing and, and Jello saying, like, does anybody feel like they're on a sinking ship? And I'm like, yes, I do. It's like the know? Indians circling yeah, the port. Yeah, and yeah. It, and it really was. And that was, you know, after the movie, you know, I, it's, it, 
seen the movie The Warriors, you know, and I totally felt like I was in that movie trying to get from Kensington back into Philly, you know, like hiding until the, you know, the L came and then running and jumping onto the, yeah, yeah. you know, jumping onto it so that, you know, we wouldn't get killed. But it was, you know, both of those times were really, really scary, frightening, fear for my lifetime. Mm. <laughs> they also know? sound kind of great though, because like as frightening as it is, like yeah. Yeah, that is yeah, a life experience. Yeah, because you know, I mean, we, you know, we were all like, oh my God, you know, can you believe that happened? And and then, you know, after that, I was all done with the Starlight. I didn't go back. Now, did Starlight continue that. to do punk shows? I don't know. I don't think they did. I think that was, you know, I think, you know, that was just such, I mean, people got really hurt at that show. And so I think that, you know, that was it. And I think, I, you know, um, there was no help from the police, you know, the police weren't going to help us at all. And so, you know, I was just like this, you know, I, I, I don't think, I don't think David Carroll ever did any more shows after, you know, he was the guy that did the hot club and I don't think he did any more shows down there mm -hmm. it, it, unless, you know, he did like New Order or something. Yeah, you know? yeah, but not, not, not any, like yeah, I don't think he did now, any right? hardcore punk shows again. Mm -hmm. So, so that was that. So then Buff Hall. Okay, yes. So at this time, you know, so we bought all our records at Third Street Jazz. That's where we bought all our records. And I can remember I bought um, SSD's Kids Will Have Their Say record. And um, I wanted them to do a show, you know, like an Elk Center show. I was going to, you know, plan on doing some kind of a thing. And I called, you know, there was a number on the thing. It said, you know, SSD wants to play your town. Call this number. So I called and it was Al. It was Al's mother's house, you know. And um, I talked to Al for a really long time on the phone for like four, literally like four hours because, you know, you know this person, you know that person. And we talked yeah. and I was like, oh, this guy's really cool. Like, I, you know, I think he's really neat. And so, uh, um, he, you know, he said, my band's playing in Staten Island with the Dead Kennedys this weekend. Um, you know, why don't you come up and, you know, I'll put you on the guest list or whatever. And, and so I hopped a ride up with the uh, ABs, Autistic Behavior Guys. And, um, and that's where I met Al for the, you know, for the very, very first time. And um, I just thought SSD were so great, you know. I was like, I had to get them to play Philly. And um, huge riot broke out there. Like, in fact, like, you know, we were in the middle of a conversation, you know, just kind of like meeting each other. I was all excited. And, and then this, you know, huge, crazy riot broke out there. And we got separated. And then um, I didn't see him probably till I went to New York and, you know, did some, saw some Bad Brain shows and we met up again up there. So at this time, by the time we're ready to do the first BYO show in Camden, um, Al and I were dating. And um, he said to me, he's like, do not book me into a war zone. You know, those were his exact words. Don't book me into a war zone. But, you know, I had been living in Philly for so long, you know, so long, two years or something, yeah. you know. But it seemed like a long time then, yeah. you know. And, and so I had no real conception of what a war zone was because I, you know, I was kind of, you know, doing shows at the Elks and, you know, yeah. going to city gardens and, you know, places like that. So I was like, you know, I'm sure it'll be okay. And I never, I didn't go to the Camden venue. But, um, Allison found it and she checked it out and, you know, she booked it. And, and they so, had never done anything punk-wise before, no, right? Yeah. No, I don't even know how she, how she, you know, found this place. But she found it, and uh, so I booked SSD, and you know, in there, and you know, um, FOD played, and uh, Crib Death, and uh, Agnostic Front. I think it was one of their first shows ever with John Watson, because John was a good friend of mine at the time, and um, uh, and Minor Threat. This and is all in the same bill. This is all in the same bill. This yeah. was like, you know, and this was probably one of the greatest shows of all time. And luckily, there so is there like is video footage of yeah, it. You yeah. know, that's just you know the greatest thing. So. 
Al picks me up at my, by this time I, had, I was living in 9th and Clinton, so Al picks me up in the big black SSD van with like, you know, 15 Boston crew in the back, you know, and I'm the only girl, you know, and I'm sitting in the front seat. So, you know, I, I tell him how to get to Camden, and we pull up in front of the place, and I get out to see where we load the equipment in, and Ian came over to talk to Al at the window, and all of a sudden I look, and there's a station wagon with this crazy Rastafarian driving it, <laughs> comes careening down the street like, you know, 100 miles an hour, you know? It was a stolen car, and hits Al's van head on, runs over Ian, you know, Ian's sneakers are laying in the street. I'm like, what Jeez. just happened, it's you know? almost the end of hardcore as we know. Yeah, I'm like, what just happened? You know, Al's just like, what did you bring me to, you know? This is how everyone's greeted. Yeah, yeah, you know? know so we're like, oh no, you know? So the show must go on, of course. So Ian goes off to the hospital. Every, they load the equipment in. And, you know, there's a bar in there, and, you know, there's the two uh, black biker gangs in there drinking, the Ghetto Riders and the Wheels of Soul, who, you know, loved Allison and me, and they were like, oh, you know, we'll take care of you guys, just, you know, listen to what we say, and don't go outside. And at one point, I did go outside for some reason, and I, I got hit with a, <laughs> a battery, like a double-D battery, somebody threw it, and I was like, okay, I'm staying inside yeah. now, I'm not going outside again. And, um, I mean... That show was unbelievable. If you were there, you are, you know, should count yourself really lucky. I mean, SSD, just, you know, every single band that played was amazing. You know, it was probably one of the best Minor Threat shows I saw, and I, you know, I probably saw them you know, five times, and, you know, they were just amazing. And, you know, again, it was one of those deals on, you know, so now Al's van is in front of the club, completely smashed, Al's bleeding, you know, he's got this big cut on his skin head, and well, I'm like, what are we going to do? Well, at least he got paid $50. Right, 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 right. I'm like, it. what are we going to do? You know, I got all these people. So um, I give somebody the keys to my apartment in, in Philly, which was a studio apartment at 9th and Clinton Street, and I said, just, you know, go to my apartment, and I call my dad. And I said, Dad, you know, my boyfriend from Boston, he's like, your boyfriend from Boston? Yeah, who's that? Yeah, who's that, you know? My boyfriend from Boston, you know, he's here and his car got smashed and I don't know what to do. My dad was like enormously cool, at the, you know, for this because he, you know, normally this, you know, I didn't know what he was going to say, you know, but when I needed him, he was always there for me. And uh, he said, have the car towed to our house in Norristown. So at, tow. Yeah, so we got a tow, tow truck came and towed it to my parents' house in Norristown and that was the first night my parents met Al, you know, there he is, you know, skinhead, which nobody had, you know, nobody had a shaved head back yeah. then, you know, and bleeding and, you know, they were like, oh my God, Nancy. You At know? least he looked like a Marine. Yeah, yeah, well, my, actually good. my dad did say that, he, you know, he did say that, but, you know, I think they were a little horrified. And, uh, you know, I got back home and there's, you know, all these kids, you know, sleeping in my in my little studio apartment and so I rented them a U-Haul to get back to Boston because you know the car was you know needed to be extensive damage was done and it needed to be fixed so uh, I rented a U-Haul with no windows oh, nice. <laughs> and they all just you know it was like, like a truck you know but back, yeah. like, I didn't know what I was doing but yeah. you know hey I got them a U-Haul so and they you know haul, you know got into the U-Haul and drove back up to Boston and you know it was crazy I remember you know, Choke was, I mean, just all those guys, that was like the first time I met, like the Boston crew guys, they're so nice. And then I, and then I moved, you know, to, about two months later, I moved to, um, I moved to Boston and I was gone. And then Allison carried on the BYO, you know, 
thing and, and you know did a bunch of cool things with it. Right, we should mention you, know? you married Al. Yeah, and, and I and married Al. And you're still with him. And I'm still with him. It was, it was uh, it'll be 31 years this December that we've been together, 24 years married. Yeah, I can't believe it. So, um, yeah, that's the stories. That is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, well, we're running out of, we have five minutes. Oh, but, okay. uh, I usually like to end the things with some kind of idea of how do you feel that your involvement in, in hardcore punk has kind of affected you moving through life? Like, do you feel that there's yeah. any kind of a thread that still moves through it's, you? It's, it's an absolute defining feature of my life. I'm a, I'm a teacher, and um, I was once up for an award where they called me the most resourceful teacher in Massachusetts because my do-it-yourself ethic so easily translated into, you know, what I do as a teacher. I get my kids all kinds of you know free tickets to plays and ballets and museums and and um, I refuse to take no for an answer when it comes to my students you know and I also think you know my experience with punk rock and hardcore helps me understand that marginalized kid who doesn't feel like he or she has a, a connection to school or anything you know I, I'm, a, I'm able to sort of uh, reach out to those kids and you know connect with them and you know let them know like hey you know you're not the only one who feels this way you yeah. know um, and while you know punk rock is certainly not something that's embraced in my school district you know kids are more into rap and techno and stuff like that you know um, there are those kids that you know just do not feel like they have a place anywhere you know and so that helps a lot but you know my teaching career has been, you know, very successful, I think, and, and, I, and I attribute it all to punk rock. Um, I won a USA Today award, and I got interviewed by Andy Rooney from 60 Minutes. His daughter has a, um, a, a TV show in Boston, and she interviewed me, and she capitalized on that. You know, on the she, punk on thing? On the punk thing, yeah. She had Googled me and found out that stuff and got some pictures and stuff, and she was like, you know, how does this play? And, and, I'm, and I said, you know, this whole, you know, do it yourself, like there's no, when when people say, well, you can't do that, I'm like, yes, I can, you know, and I'll do events at my school that um, people, you know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be doing one in, um, in October, I'm calling it Revere University, I teach at Revere High School, where I'm calling in four professors from all over, you know, the New England region to come and lecture to parents and high school kids just to give them a college experience, you know? That's like so doing a hardcore show oh, yeah, 30 yeah. years ago, you know? Yeah. It's all gonna be put together the same way. I gotta rent the venue, I gotta get the band, you know? So, I mean, it definitely, absolutely influenced me. And, and I really think that that whole, you know, one of the reasons that people from our generation um, became activist and um, you know people that are, are out there trying to change the world and ethical business owners and 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 things like that is because of the time that we grew up in and the music that we embraced you know mm. and I wish there were more people that were of that era because maybe the world would be a better place right. you know but the ideas live on I mean, I mean it must be strange for you in a, in a sense to see 30 years later like yeah. a kid wearing a minor threat shirt yeah, think, like, it blows my I did mind. the Buffalo show you know yeah. SSD show or any of these kind of things like 
there are still young people who right. are drawn to this thing. Right, it does and blow my mind. And the ideas, they come yep. part and parcel with it, which yes. you know they take forward too. Maybe not all of them, yep. But, yep. but some of them can maybe follow a trajectory. Yeah, it, and, and it definitely does. And, and I, you know, I've gotten just lately where I get really angry when people do the histories um, of of the scenes and stuff and they don't do their homework on it and they don't you know talk to the people that they should talk to because I, I you know it's probably you know part of my grandiose narcissistic um, personality but you know especially as it relates to women when I hear people say you know that parkour was such a misogynistic uh, genre and it really makes me mad because I never saw it that way you know it was a physical definitely um, genre and there were probably you know you know branches of it and parts of it in songs even that that you know tended on the misogynistic side but I never ever felt like I was not a part of that scene and not a contributing member of that scene you know mm -hmm. I felt like I was making my mark and um, I was you know being I was able to bring the bands that I loved you know it was so much about the music, you know. It wasn't about the fashion. It really wasn't. It wasn't about, you know, spiky hair or anything. It was about the bands and the music. And there was just, you know, there's nothing like seeing a band that you love play live, you know. Fantastic. So. I guess we'll, we'll wrap it up since okay. we ran out of time. But I want to thank you very much yeah, for doing excellent. this. Yeah, excellent. I'm so, so I'm psyched that you came and did all this and met me at the train station. And Absolutely. My pleasure. Cool. Yeah. Right, thank you.